Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition, filmed today on Monday, July 18th, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on the phone is Jordan Wathen, one of our excellent analysts here at The Motley Fool. How's it going, Jordan? Pretty good. How are you? Really great, thank you. Um, I'm really excited to talk about our topic today, which is Banco Santander, or just Santander, as we're going to call it today. Um, why don't we just dive in? Uh, so I was looking at this bank online um, in Capital IQ and through their investor relations website, and the thing that struck me was the complexity of this bank. Right, right. So uh, Banco Santander will start. It's the largest bank in Spain, and it's definitely one of the largest banks around the world. Uh, at the end of the most recent quarter, I think they had about a trillion and a half of assets, which would put it among, say, our big four here in the United States. And it's mostly a retail bank, so they're basically in the business of just making or taking deposits and making loans. And they do that from about 14,000 branches, so it's operationally huge. Uh, bank of America, for instance, has something like 5,000 branches, just to put that in perspective. And it's historically earned kind of respect for being very efficient and very operationally lean because it has, at least historically, spent less than 50% of its income on operating expenses, whereas its peers are about 62% of uh, operating expenses as a percentage of income. So this is really interesting to me because um, I know that recently they've been having a lot of trouble. So like right now, Santander is ranked as the third largest Eurozone bank by market cap, sitting around 58 billion US dollars, which I just want to remind you, we should put everything in US dollars if we can, so it's easier for our mostly US-based listeners to, to understand what's going on. But I know that we have some international listeners. Shout out to you all right now. Um, and But since since 2014, the bank has lost about 50% of its market value. So it was around $100 billion US dollars two years ago, which is crazy. Right, right. I mean, it's really a huge, huge bank. And, you know, some it's ran into some issues, of course, and some have been uh, long-term issues. For instance, the fact that it's in Spain has been a bit of a problem because since the financial crisis, Spanish property dropped in value and basically never recovered. Yeah. So if you look at its uh, Spanish loan book, six uh, percent of its loans are non-performing, which is, you know, compared to the American banks, how their real estate loans are faring, it's pretty poor performance. Yeah, and not just that, but Spain has incredibly low interest rates, and has right. Yeah, that certainly does help. Uh, and um, what else? What else? So Spain hasn't been performing that well, um, and then so that's kind of a longer term issue. But in the more short 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 term, um, we've also they've also had some issues with um, with stuff in Europe and in Latin America, right? Right. So w one of the big problems. We'll just get this out of the way because this is a problem that's really unfortunate in the timing. It, it just the way it works. But the bank reports its earnings in euros, right? Which the euro, the European, the euro is much stronger against the Mexican peso, against the pound, for example, than it was six or twelve months ago. So when it translates those earnings back into its home currency, so to speak, whatever it earns overseas is automatically lower. Yeah. So it looks like they earned less. It, right. it, it is that they. It, it yeah. It basically is that they learned, earned less than they than you would have had if it those loans had been made in euros, um, and. One of the things that's really been affecting this actually is Brexit. So I don't know if you caught on to this um, with what um, 
Jordan was talking about, but Santander has a really big presence in Latin America, South America, especially in Brazil, Argentina, Chile. Um, and so, <laughs> um, there's a lot of volatility in South America. I don't know if people know that. I don't know if they think about South America as a place to invest in very frequently, but South America is a very interesting place full of a lot of opportunities but very risky opportunities. And I think Santander is feeling that right now in particular. Right. So it's hard to imagine how Brexit and then Latin America could be related. But really, when you think about Santander, if you look at its 2015 profits, about 23% of it came from the UK, give or take. Right. So that's expected to be its kind of like its, its core earnings base where you expect some stability. Of course, Brexit kind of throws that out the window because it's it's very hard to make money in the UK right now as a lender. Uh, recently, in 2015, uh, Santander earned about 1.8% net interest margin on its loans. So the difference between its deposit or funding costs and what it was earning on its loans that it was making, which is very thin margin. That's and so most people expect that to come down even further because yields are down considerably in the UK. Uh, the 10-year yield in the UK was 1.6% in January, and now it's down to 0.8%. So you have a 50% reduction right there. Right. And so the the UK was being used to kind of smooth out the volatility that you're seeing in Latin America. Um, one of its most important markets, like I said, was uh, Brazil, or is Brazil in Latin America. And Brazil is in the middle of the worst recession that they've ever experienced right now. Yeah, Brazil's having a bit of trouble. Uh, the IMF expects now that Brazil's economy will shrink by about 3.8%. Uh, Argentina's also expected to shrink by about 1%. And then even among growing countries in Latin America, they're expect like Chile is expected to grow 1.5%, Mexico to grow two, at 2.4%. Uh, Santander operates in all these countries. But as Latin America as a whole is expected to shrink by half a percent this year in 2016, which would be the second negative growth year in a row, or the second year of contraction in a row. Right. So when you take the the, the the contraction that we're seeing in Latin America, and then you pair it with the contraction that you're going to probably see post-Brexit, um, you get kind of bad news for Santander, because Santander was relying on the UK to smooth out any volatility that it would have in its South American markets. And one of the reasons that Santander expanded to South America, besides the fact that they're originally Spanish and it made sense for them to go to Latin America, it just makes sense in terms of language and all of those good things, um, is because there's a lot more opportunity in terms of interest rates in nations that are in um, economic growth periods and political development periods versus the Western world, where interest rates are very, very low right now. Right, right. So, basically, the UK is supposed to be the anchor, and it's supposed to provide that the consistency. And then Latin America is where you can really get some some fat loan yields. Right, you can put put your money to work and earn a very good spread. So, the Brazilian ten-year rate, for instance, government bonds in Brazil yield twelve percent. In Mexico, they yield six percent. In Chile, they yield four point four percent. So that's really kind of a basis to understand that it. In the United States, for example, you're, you're not going to earn much on deposits because you're going to pay at a minimum 0% for them and hope to lend them at 3 or 4%. In Brazil, where the government bond yield is 12%, there's obviously much more room to carve out a, uh, a margin between what you're lending at and what you're paying on your deposits. Yeah. So, for everyone who is wondering how Brexit and Latin America are 
intertwined for this bank. This is why. Um, and it just just to, to add to the complexity, Santander has also been trying to build up its consumer financing kind of branches over here in the United States as well. And that has gone interestingly for them. Um, I don't know if your mother ever told you this, Jordan, but my mom always says, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And barring that, just say something that it's interesting. <laughs> um, so for the U.S., the U.S. division of Santander, um, they're having they're having a little bit of trouble. Um, announced, I think yesterday was that um, Santander has the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I'm going to shorten to CFPB because it's too much of a mouthful to say, has ordered Santander to pay about ten million dollars in fines for hiring a telemarketer that engaged in deceptive tactics in order to get bank customers to sign up for an overdraft protection program. Right. So, it, it wouldn't be another day if there weren't another bank in the news for being fined by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yeah. But this unit is called Santander USA Holdings, and it's what owns Santander Bank here in the United States. Uh, that bank previously operated as Sovereign Bank. They bought it in, I want to say 2006, but don't quote me on that. Uh, and the, the fine of $10 million, as far as financial results goes, is pretty immaterial. Uh, probably about less than 2% of allocated profits last year. But it really does, on top of other issues, which I think we'll get to, uh, really shows kind of the problems they're having operationally. Uh, Santander got in trouble basically with the CFPB because <laughs> they didn't, they basically told people to sign up for an overdraft protection program which would charge them fees every time they overdraft, made an overdraft on their account. Yeah, and the right. reason the CFPB cares so much is that typically these overdraft charges, they hurt low-income consumers disproportionately more, right? Like, they're more likely to overdraft their account, and then the, the fees that they get charged are going to hurt them a lot more than someone who has a big paycheck coming in every month. Right, so once someone signed up for this, what could potentially happen is they go to the grocery store and overdraft buying something there. They go to a gas station and swipe their card for you know a tank of gas and make another overdraft, and those fees just add on top of each other every single time. Yeah, and for the most part, a lot of the overdraft problems, stuff that banks had kind of built up as a way to, to boost their, um, their fee income, um, had been kind of controlled post-financial crisis, especially like Bank of America was infamous for the fees that it would charge its unsuspecting customers, but they really cut back on that. Um, so this is kind of like a relic of that era. But still, um, there's a there's a service, MOBS Services estimates that U.S. banks make or made approximately $32.5 billion from overdraft revenue alone in 2015, which is not an insignificant amount of money. <laughs> No, it's not insignificant at all, especially when you consider it's basically costless, right? I mean, it, it doesn't cost the bank anything, really, to charge someone an overdraft fee. That just that's almost flows entirely to the bottom line. Yeah. So, But it should be pointed out that Santander has severed relations with the vendor of its own volition, um, and the CFPB has mandated that it contact everyone who is enrolled in the program to make sure that they actually understand what they have signed up for. So it's kind of more of a hit to their reputation more than anything else. Um, speaking of their reputation, <laughs> Santander has failed the Fed's stress test three years in a row, making it the first bank to ever do that. <laughs> right. Uh, that's kind of a huge thing. Well, see, one of the problems, especially as you talk about Santander, is last year the United States 
really only made up about 8% of its allocated profits. So it's kind of a small part of the overall bank. And if you ran the entire institution, obviously your concerns are probably more aptly directed to the United Kingdom or Spain, for example. But the, the US uh, holdings unit hasn't done well in stress testing. It, it's done well quantitatively, but not qualitatively. Basically, the Fed's worried about their ability to manage their risks and allocate capital effectively. Yeah, I think that the, the the direct quote from the Fed is that they had they cited problems with Santander's ability to um, implement good internal controls, oversight, and governance. Um, interestingly, they passed on the Fed's capital requirements, right? Like their their common equity tier one ratio was around twelve percent, and I think the Fed's minimum requirement, or I know the Fed's minimum requirement is is four point five percent. So like. Right. Monetarily, like they passed, but like it sounds like their internal controls around risk are not great. Right. And, and it's kind of an unfortunate consequence for the people, we'll get into this, but the people who invest in Santander Consumer USA, which is their consumer bank, or it's, it's a non bank, sorry, it's a non bank financier of cars, but their Santander Consumer USA unit can't pay a dividend until that holding company, which owns about 60% of Santander Consumer USA, gets the rubber stamp from the Fed. Yeah, um, and so part of, attached potentially to, to why the Fed has so many problems with their risk oversight, um, is the fact that what Santander's really known for, at least in the US, is subprime auto lending. Um, right, so their subprime auto lending unit is the Santander Consumer USA unit, which is publicly traded under the ticker SC here in the United States. And they are basically in the business of financing cars for people who have, generally speaking, will probably have problems paying it back. Uh, I was looking at their financial filings earlier, and about 27% of their borrowers have, at one period or another, asked for an extension on their car loan. So these are not at all very prime borrowers. In fact, the prime the prime auto loans that they actually originate, they typically sell off. So it's almost a subprime pure play, so to speak. Yeah, and just in case you're wondering, subprime is credit scores, FICO scores below um, 640. So right below 640. So uh, these are these are loans that are very high risk, and basically the way you make money in this business is to have scale. You have to be willing to deal with borrowers who are going to call you up and say, "Hey, I can't pay this month." or I need to defer my payment. And in a lot of cases, it's very high touch. You're going to have to repossess a lot of cars. Yeah. Um, the other way that you make good money is because a lot of subprime borrowers don't have a lot of resources to borrow money. It means you can charge them much higher interest rates. Right. So in 2015, and I'll look at the actual number, I believe, let's see, their loan yields were 16.9% on their Holy subprime borrowers who I had an average FICO of 584. So very high interest rates on borrowers who, at least in terms of their uh, FICO score, aren't generally good borrowers. Um, and then attached to the subprime auto lending, it's Santander in the U.S. is facing a class action lawsuit again, um, or not again, but kind of in in relation to the 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 CFPB investigation. Um, they're facing a class action lawsuit alleging that they pressured consumers into making payments online or on the phone and then charged them illegal convenience fees. Um, and this is for those subprime auto loans. So it's kind of like the same thing that the CFPB went after. This is a class action lawsuit, so it's not being brought by a government agency, I don't believe. 
Um, and unfortunately for Santander, on July 13th, they lost their motion to dismiss. So it looks like the case is going to continue for the time being. So it's it's kind of it's just kind of a mess. Well, I mean, that's the thing about subprime lending. It, it's just a, it's it's just a really ugly business. It's not actually the CEO, uh, the ex CEO, I should say, of the consumer unit here in the United States, Tom Dundon. He always tried to avoid the media and avoid you know any attention because it, it's it's not a pretty business. You know, it's not fun to say, yeah, I made a billion dollars lending money to people who can't exactly afford a car. Yeah. Right. Like it, it, it's not a fun way to get rich. It's not fun to knock on doors and try to recoup you know, $500 from, say, a single mother who earns minimum wage because she wanted to buy a car to get to work. That's, that's just not a fun business. It's not something someone wants to be known for. Yeah. And like you said, it, it can be profitable if you get it up to scale, but it's, I don't know. Um, so one of the things that I was looking at when I was looking at the Santander investor relations site was that they break out all of their uh, investor presentations by um, geographic area, and then they have like one overarching one, but the overarching one doesn't have nearly enough detail. And then you have to kind of make like this conglomerate of all these other ones. So like we're actually talking about a fairly small portion of Santander's business when you think about it overall with the U.S. But it's a it's a very very complicated bank. Um, and while it doesn't make all of its money from subprime auto lending, it does make that's most of the money it makes in the U.S. Right. Right. Uh, in the U.S. at least, yeah. Because, obviously, so understanding the structure of the bank just in the United States is hard enough. So Santander, the giant $1.5 billion owned bank, owns Santander Bank in the United or Santander Holdings in the United States, which owns the retail bank and owns the non-bank car company. And then in the United States, you have Santander Consumer USA, which is wholly auto loans. Yeah, yeah. And it it doesn't get any better. I feel like in any of the other countries that it operates in, like it it's equally complicated in all of its business units. So, for me anyway, I would have a really hard time investing in Santander just because it's so so complicated in a way that even J.P. Morgan is not. Even though J.P. Morgan is a is a universal bank that does investing as well as retail stuff, Santander is just so for a retail bank is incredibly complicated. Right, yeah. It, it, it almost feels like it's by design. I mean, it's really what happens when you go around the world and you basically buy banks. It, that's Santander's growth story is they went around the world and they acquired banks and that's how they, you know, built this business globally. Yeah, and on top of that, they're they're dealing with a lot of regulatory things that say like a Wells Fargo is not because they have such they have a much more limited market Wells Fargo does so that they can be a lot simpler and as a retail bank they function very efficiently in the United States because they have a very clear or at least for investors they have a very clear business model right well and i think most investors would prefer prefer to have a pure play i think so when you think about investing in a bank, say in the United, like investing in a bank in the United States, let's say I, I would say a lot of investors prefer the simplicity of Wells Fargo, for example, because you know it's basically an American bank. What happens in the American economy affects Wells Fargo. But if you look at it, say a city, for example, you know you have worldwide exposure. And frankly, I don't have that much insight into how Latin America is going to look five years from now. Like I just don't. You know, I don't live there. You know, I don't see it day to day. But I know what America looks like. You know what I'm saying? So, from an investor standpoint, I think being a global bank is something that will always, 
to some extent, negatively affect its valuation. Right. It's just interesting because this is a retail bank that has the complexity of a universal bank, um, which is a very unexpected thing to find, I think. Um, so, overall, what, what do you think of Santander after our conversation today? <laughs> well, I, I think so. Santander Consumer is very interesting to me. I think the subprime auto business in general is very interesting because. I think there's a lot of money to be made, and I think there's a lot of probably concern that might potentially be overblown. <laughs> I don't know if I could add more qualifiers to that. But <laughs> you know, when you look at Santa- Santander, consumer has been warning for a long time, well, not for a long time, but especially recently, that you know, auto loans aren't going to perform as well as they were. Yields are down, and also their expectations for losses are way up. But I think there's there's a point at which this gets really interesting for me to buy. I don't know if it's five times last year's earnings, which it basically trades at right now, because of I, I'm still not quite comfortable with what with what losses will look look like in the future. But uh, it's definitely one that's on my watch list as something to potentially buy as just a value play. Yeah, that's interesting. It's definitely not on my watch list at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's just it's one of those things where there's a price at which something's so cheap that it's worth a flyer. And if you look at the valuation of Santander Consumer USA, it's really just a call option, really, uh, because it's just priced so inexpensively. If things work out the way you know they're projecting, it'll do just fine. They'll print money. Uh, it might not ever get the valuation they want, but I think it can be. It could. It could potentially be a good investment as long as they don't, you know, lose it all in subprime over the next couple of years. Yeah, and then for me, the the risks that are happening internationally, which is confusing because they also trade on different tickers everywhere, um, is is enough to, to be very off-putting to me, um, especially their their exposure to Latin America. Um, right, yeah. I, like Santander, Banco Santander, the whole, you know, the giant $1.5 billion or trillion dollar institution isn't really that interesting to me just because I feel like it's one of those things where once something goes right in one locale, you end up having a problem pop up elsewhere, and it's it's probably the return on brain damage for something like that's a little too low, I would think. <laughs> awesome. Um, this was a very complete conversation, at least from my perspective. If listeners have any questions, feel free to write in. But as usual, I want to remind you that people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocusatfool.com or by tweeting us at MFIndustryFocus. Thank you to Austin Morgan, today's totally awesome producer. And thank you to y'all. I hope everyone has a great week.